The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Thank you, Sheldon. Good morning, Grace Family Church. It's good to see you this morning. There is a centuries-old Christian tradition that on this Sunday of Sundays, believers greet each other by saying, Christ is risen, and the reply is, He's risen indeed. So let's do that. Christ is risen. One more time. Christ is risen. And of course, we do this to affirm this reality, this reality that anchors our lives. Preaching for you is always a privilege, but that's especially true on this Sunday of Sundays. Resurrection Sunday changed every day that has followed it. We worship on the first day of the week because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead, inaugurating the new creation. The story of his resurrection deserves to be told again and again. Yet I find that each year as we approach these familiar days on the Christian calendar, I'm not content to preach the familiar narratives. While the same stories can be preached in fresh ways, I find myself drawn beyond the stories themselves to explore their significance. The death and resurrection of Jesus sent seismic waves of astounding magnitude through the universe, and I'm fascinated by some of the far-off places where they're detected. This year, that fascination has led me, as Sheldon mentioned, to a book that I didn't expect to be in at Easter, to Revelation. So please turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. What does Revelation have to do with the resurrection? What surely sticks in your mind, if you've read this final book of the Bible, is the strange and disturbing images of beasts and dragons, uh, bowls of wrath and plagues, and hopefully the glorious images at the end of a new Jerusalem with streets of gold and the marriage supper of the Lamb. But are you aware that the very first vision in this book is a vision of the risen Christ? In this unusual vision, in Revelation 1, 9-20, Jesus' appearance and words offer us a unique perspective on the significance of his resurrection from the dead. Yet this heavenly vision could not be more down-to-earth. It is meant to ground our hearts as God's people as we live each day between his resurrection and his return. So let's listen with high expectations, even as we ask God to help us to see our risen Savior with new eyes. Revelation 1, reading from verses 9 through to 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, Seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. When you read the accounts of the resurrection in the Gospels, it's clear that after Jesus rose from the dead, he looks like a regular human being. Those who knew him best mistook him for a gardener or just another traveler or some guy standing on the beach, which means he didn't look anything like what John saw in this vision. The strangeness of the visions is a part of what makes the book of Revelation so daunting. Yet every detail is significant in revealing who Jesus is. It's what Jesus says, however, that makes it clear that we are standing on ground here in Revelation that is still shaking from the impact of the resurrection. This is a good place to stand and measure if we want to better fathom what was accomplished on Resurrection Sunday. As we'll come to see, it is because Jesus is reigning over death that John was commissioned to write to the churches. And this book of Revelation was given not merely to serve the seven churches we read of, but to serve every church that Jesus would raise up until he comes with the clouds and every eye sees him. Perhaps to our surprise, Revelation meets us where we are. In his commentary on Revelation, the author Dennis Johnson makes this helpful observation. Christians spend much of every day with eyes and minds focused on the surface of things. Details about deadlines, delays, dollars, dress, food and shelter, going and coming, work and recreation, politics and more. Attending to everyday issues is necessary and right, but our hearts long to see the big picture, the meaning that lies behind the details. The revelation shown to John unveils this deep pattern beneath the surface of history. How appropriate that before all else, John sees the one who makes sense of history on a grand scale and of our experience. Because we're jumping into this text just for this week, and particularly because of how it begins, we need to get our bearings if we're going to benefit from it. So here's how I want to conduct you through this text. We'll ask the question, what's going on? And we're going to find our answers mostly in verses 9 to 11. Then we'll focus on what John saw in verses 10 through to 17a. Finally, we'll consider what Jesus said in the rest of verse 17 through to 20. So let's begin then. Let's consider what's going on in this text. Much to my surprise, a few weeks ago, I received an invitation to a conference that will be held in Turkey, all expenses covered, in the city of Izmir this coming June. I declined with some regret, and that's much too long a story for this short sermon, 
But in the process I cons of considering the invitation, I checked to see just where in the world it would have taken me. The ancient name of, of modern-day Izmir is Smyrna, one of the locations of the seven churches that John was told to write to in our text. These days, you can drive south from Izmir along the Turkish Mediterranean coast, and I'm told it's beautiful, uh, for a few hours, then via a series of ferries make the journey to the island of Patmos, a Greek municipality in the Aegean Sea. These days, Patmos is a tourist destination, boasting, according to the literature, turquoise beach waters and a spiritual atmosphere. It's a far cry from the days when John wrote this book. In those days, Patmos was one of the places where governors in the province of Asia exiled socially disruptive people to get them out of the empires here. John was banished there because he was proclaiming the gospel on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, as he says. In the book of Revelation, that phrase is consistently associated with suffering. The general consensus is that this John was the Apostle John, one of Jesus' original disciples and the author of the Gospel of John and three short New Testament letters that bear his name. Yet, he does not position himself as an authoritative leader to be regarded, but as a brother and partner to those to whom he was writing. He expressed solidarity with those believers. He wanted them to know that they were a part of the same family as him and that together they were sharing three interwoven realities, the tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. At the time John wrote in the last decade of the first century AD, the early church was going through waves of trouble in different places and at different times. From being misunderstood and slandered to being shunned and or outright persecuted, life wasn't easy if you declared that Jesus was Lord and joined his band of misfits in a local church. If you were to take the time to read the next two chapters of Revelation, where Jesus speaks to the seven churches individually, you'd see that in different ways and to differing extents, they all were going through difficult times. Facing threats including hostile neighbors, false teaching, moral compromise, and spiritual complacency. That's a depressing reality to consider on this bright and glorious Resurrection Sunday. But it's exactly what Jesus promised if we follow him. To be joined with the king means we inherit the kingdom, but it also means we follow the way of the king. Since his road was a road of suffering that required patient endurance, ours will be the same. Following Christ is a package deal. It's a bundled plan. It comes with suffering, the kingdom, and patient endurance. It's a good reminder that we should never even implicitly promise anyone that coming to Jesus will solve all their problems and simplify their life. There's nothing that compares with the blessings of salvation. What we're reminded of right here is that Jesus brings us into God's family with so many benefits. But when we invite others to come to Jesus, it's not an all-expense-paid trip to modern-day Patmos with its turquoise beaches and spiritual atmosphere. It's a brotherhood with people like John who are paying a high price for their allegiance to Jesus. It's a price that we all pay in whichever way God sovereignly chooses for us in our place and time. We experience this brotherhood and partnership through our family of churches, Sovereign Grace Churches. We're connected in tangible ways to local churches and pastors around the world. 
many of whom hold to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus in very different circumstances than ours. Our most recent missions newsletter sent out this past week shared stories from a number of different nations. I want to just highlight two for you. Some of our pastors have been involved for the past six years or so in training 10 pastors from Pakistan. Because of the open hostility to the gospel and towards Christians in Pakistan, the training takes place at a neutral site in the Middle East, and these men can't say why they're traveling. When we share pictures from these gatherings, the faces of the Pakistani pastors need to be blurred for their safety. Scott Crook, a pastor from Maryland, wrote this. These dear brothers travel on foot and on motorbike to different villages in their country every week, preaching the gospel and making disciples. Even though they are under constant threat of persecution, they baptize hundreds of new converts every year. They hold Bible studies and leadership conferences, sometimes under the cover of night. Every time they complete a training with us, they immediately return home and train other leaders with the same material. The situation for our brothers and sisters in Nepal is not much better. Laws are in place that seek to limit the growth of, of churches, and the gospel is in conflict with the rival claims of Hinduism and Buddhism. We have been working closely with a pastor who, leads, who wants to lead his church formally uh, to become a part of Sovereign Grace. He loves our family and our convictions and wants the 160-plus churches and pastors that he cares for to be equipped for gospel ministry and to benefit from partnering with us. A small team of pastors from the U.S. traveled there recently to continue building relationships with them and training his elder team. Uh, I know almost all of the men who went there. Um, they reported this. They live with constant thankfulness for the presence, power, and faithfulness and sovereignty of, of God in salvation. They celebrate the abiding love of our risen Savior, preserving them through pain and persecution. They depend upon the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit to empower their mission. They wear well the armor of God in waging war against sin, sin's temptations and the tactics of the devil. They live with a passion for God's glory, a loving burden for their church to grow in the character and mission of Christ, and a desire to see every people group in their nation reached with the gospel. I want to tell you about one more of our partners. When I uh, went to do a course this January, I met Sergei. Sergei pastors a church in Belarus. Uh, so I was surprised to see him at the course. As we got to talk, he explained that he and his wife had to flee from Belarus because the authorities, the KGB, was looking for them. So I'm sitting with this guy just in amazement at this man who is pouring his life into this church. And, you know, I... I don't know if you can imagine what it would be like to have to leave your home to not know if you could ever return. But that's what he was facing. And his next thought was, well, I'm in Poland. I could plant a church there. Because there are lots of people fleeing from Belarus and from the Ukraine in Poland. It's an honor to serve beside such men. One, one more thing that happened to him. Right at the end of our training, he gets a call, a threatening call saying, we know where you are. And if you ever come to Belarus or Russia, we are going to arrest you. I mean... You know, just, it, as I say, it's a privilege and a partner to honor with these, uh, to, to, just to, to partner with these brothers and these churches in Pakistan, in Nepal, uh, with Sergei hoping to plant in Poland. And there are many other countries that I don't even have the time to mention today. One of the ways that we embrace our connection with them is by praying for them in their unique suffering. 
One of the ways we encourage them is by being faithful in our own situation and embracing our own suffering. We too must be faithful to grow in the character and mission of Christ. When we face difficult circumstances, we can be tempted to compromise on our convictions in search of comfort or relief. But it should encourage us to recognize that the patient endurance we need in the face of suffering is a part of the package that we receive in Jesus. We must endure, but it is his power that enables us to do so. John, while in the spirit, heard a voice like a trumpet, his experience mirroring that of Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and Moses. This voice instructed him to write what he would see in a book and send it to seven churches in Asia. No, that number is both real and representative. Seven real churches representing all churches from then until now. When John turned to see who was speaking, what he saw was beyond bizarre. Let's turn our attention to what John saw in verses 10 through to 17a. So look with me at verse 10. And feel free to just scan that section again in your Bibles. The first thing that caught John's attention was not the speaker, but the setting. He saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was one like a son of man, dressed in a robe that went down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And with that, off John takes us down the rabbit hole, seemingly into Wonderland. Nearly half of the Bible is made up of stories, of narrative. If biblical narrative is like realistic paintings of cities and the countryside, of portraits of individuals or scenes with crowds, then apocalyptic literature is like abstract art or surrealism. It's jarring and strange. The images are confusing. What's going to help us to understand them is recognizing that these symbols appear early in the Bible often in the apocalyptic books of the Old Testament. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might be able to jog your memory to recognize these opening images. Lampstands and a long robe with a sash. Where do those come from? The temple or tabernacle in the Old Testament. The robe and sash are reminiscent of how the priests would have dressed. As for the lampstands, the commentator G.K. Beale explains, in the tabernacle and temple, the lampstand with, it, with its seven lamps stood in the holy place before the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And the Jews understood the light that came from its lamps to represent the presence of the Lord. Much of John's description of who he saw uses language that's strikingly similar to how the prophet Daniel described characters in his visions. That's going to help us to pick up some clues because these details are meant to communicate ideas about this person by association. In Daniel 7, 13-14, one like a son of man, a human king who at the same time is more than a mere man, came to the ancient of days, that's God of course, and was given an everlasting kingdom and dominion and glory. In that vision, the ancient of days had hair that looked like pure wool. But in John's vision, that's how the Son of Man looked. He isn't confusing apocalyptic images. Here, the Son of Man possesses qualities attributed only to God. In this case, wisdom and omniscience. He also speaks with the voice of God, majestic and powerful, like the sound of many waters, a description seen in Ezekiel and in the Psalms. A number of the other details that John describes resemble a heavenly prophetic messenger and warrior described in Daniel 10, 4-6. to 6. 
eyes like a flame of fire, feet or legs like burnished bronze, face shining brilliantly. And the sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth is an image from Isaiah 49.2, describing the servant of the Lord in his role as prophet and judge. Who then is this son of man? Well, John's vision is a human king dressed like a priest, portrayed as a prophet, warrior, and judge who has qualities that are only associated with God. King, priest, prophet, warrior, judge with divine attributes. At this point, I suspect several of you no longer need to spin the wheel or buy any more vowels. You're ready to solve the puzzle. Even before he speaks and makes it plain, we can recognize that the Son of Man is Jesus. Now, forget the details for a moment. If you picture this vision in your imagination, if you place yourself there with John, what he describes is stunning. It's no wonder John faints in verse 17. The brightness, the magnificence, the beauty, the volume would have been overwhelming. Even without our best attempts to interpret the details, this vision is meant to affect us. Tom Schreiner rightly says, John wants us to see and feel the glory and splendor and majesty of the Son of Man. But why the symbolism? Dennis Johnson explains well. The symbols seen by John in the vision reveal not what Jesus looks like, but what he is like. His identity as the searcher of hearts, full of consuming holiness and boundless wisdom, the perfect priest standing for his people before the Father, the perfect king defending them against the devil by his invincible word. Revelation's visions show us how things are, not how they look to the physical eye. Now we need to notice just a few more details in this, in this vision for, for it to have its full effect. Where is the Son of Man? He's in the midst of seven lampstands. We learn in verse 20 that the lampstands represent the seven churches John is to write to. And the stars in the hand of the Son of Man represent the angels of the seven churches. Dennis Johnson argues compellingly that based on how these angels are addressed in the next two chapters, they're not literal angels, but the churches themselves viewed from the perspective of Christ's control over his churches. Think with me now about the situation for the original recipients of this letter. They would have felt isolated and insignificant, huddling together on Sundays in the shadow of an empire that was anything but hospitable to them. Was Jesus aware of all that they were enduring patiently? Did he even see their faithfulness and the ways they were serving sacrificially? Some of them had lost the love they had at first and some were becoming like the world around them. But did any of that even matter to Jesus? John wrote to these harassed, helpless, and sorely tempted saints to unveil spiritual realities that they were unable to see with their eyes. Where was Jesus? Among his people. He saw everything with eyes that burned like flames. Where were they? In his hands. The one who was reigning as the all-wise king of an everlasting kingdom was holding them even as he interceded for them as their priest. Here's what John's vision means. The glorious son of man is among his people and we are in his hands. When you think about Jesus, where is he? Is he near to you? 
Is he among us? Or is he far off, sitting pretty somewhere, untouched by the suffering you face? Is he blind to what you think and feel? Or do you see him as the one who sees you more clearly than you're able to see yourself, yet loves you completely? Is Jesus glorious, vivid in your mind and heart? Is he powerful and present? Or is he distant and dull? And the only thing that is in sharp relief for you is your disappointments and struggles, whether present or historical. Do you see him as a high priest who is for you, serving you by interceding on your behalf? As a prophet who speaks by his word to serve you, to lead you into faithfulness, to correct and to comfort? As a king who rules for your benefit? Do you live as if you are an heir of the kingdom? Or do you function more like a disgruntled employee, wondering what's in it for me? Does the knowledge of his presence help you to seek to please him in everything? If we as churches are lampstands, then are we not meant to be holy, to be pure as gold and visible representations of the light of God in this dark world by the power of the Spirit? There's encouragement and grace that comes from seeing what Jesus is like and where he is. And that grace is further multiplied when we pay attention to what he said. So let's turn our attention to what Jesus said in the remaining verses of our passage. We're in the second half of verse 17. It's significant that Jesus' first words to John are words of comfort. Fear not. As John's response bears out, Jesus is holy and glorious and we, small and sinful people as we are, are rightly terrified by such magnificence. But to be blunt, if he wanted us dead, we would be. Jesus came near not to endanger John, but to speak to John in order to bless him and all who would read the words of Revelation. Being terrified of God will not lead us to please him. Yet it serves to know that he is awesome in his holiness so that we will be rightly amazed that he draws near to comfort us and to reveal himself to us. What's revealed about Jesus when he speaks? He identifies himself as the first and the last. G.K. Beale explains, this phrase refers to the complete sovereignty of God over human history from beginning to end. And its use by the exalted Christ here shows that he too is Lord over history, thus removing any doubt that he too is divine. Christ is the force behind history, causing it to fulfill his purposes. You see, it wasn't only Jesus' appearance that threatened to overwhelm John. It was also John's experience of suffering. The churches John was writing to face the same threat. We face the same threat. Perhaps less so for us in this moment, but definitely for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, we are tempted to fear when we face suffering because of our allegiance to Jesus. More frequently our experience when the phone rings and it's bad news, when the doctor makes a discouraging diagnosis, when we fail exams, when income sources evaporate, when our lives feel out of control, we are tempted to fear, aren't we? All these things we experience while in union with Jesus. But in all these situations, Jesus reminds us that he rules over all of human history from beginning to end. And the fact that he comes near to remind us of this means that he is for us and we can trust him. What else does Jesus say? Look at verse 18. 
I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This right here is so good. It's such a wonderful vantage point from which to consider Jesus' resurrection and the impact that it had. So let's wrestle with it for a little bit. The Son of Man, whom John saw in his vision, is now saying that he is the same man whom John knew when he walked on the earth. The crazy and glorious looking man, flaming eyes, sword in mouth, shining face, roaring voice, is the same Jesus who died on the cross. It's one thing to believe in a God who made us and is in control of the world in some vague sort of way. Many Jamaicans believe something like that. It's very different to believe that the same Jesus who died in apparent weakness at the hands of Roman soldiers is now glorious and powerful, ruling as the king of the universe. That's simply not how most people see Jesus. I mean, the truth is you can think of Jesus as a wise philosopher or a social revolutionary, even a dying and rising savior, yet not recognize him or respond to him as the reigning king of the universe. Yet the gospel requires us to respond to him as a reigning king. That's what it means to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He doesn't just offer salvation, he demands allegiance. John had seen the resurrected Christ on earth. He had eaten with him and listened to him teach. He had seen him ascend into heaven, but he had never seen him like this. He had never seen a representation of what it means for him to be the reigning king of the universe. So Jesus says to him, I was dead, but look, but behold, I am alive forevermore. We need this vision and this explanation. We too need to look and see that Jesus who died is alive forevermore and is glorious beyond description. We need to be reminded that Jesus rose from the dead to be exalted as the ruler of everything. If we fail to see him as he truly is, we'll be in danger of ignoring his words of comfort and his words of command. Who's into reality TV shows? I, I say like one hand. Really? It, it, it's gotten that bad? D thank you, Daniel, for admitting it. People here are like, no, I'm not telling you. You know? I can't say that I ever became a big fan of them. Uh, I mean, a couple of them caught my attention from time to time. But I'm aware that Survival was one of the first and most famous reality shows that opened the door for many others. There have been many winners of Survival over the years. I think they've done 43 seasons. That's ridiculous. You know, winning that competition requires guile and skill. But winning Survival, beating the game, doesn't necessarily mean... Uh, that you can ensure that anyone else can beat the game. Right here in Revelation, we see the magnitude of Jesus' victory. He didn't merely beat death, he owns it. He walked into death and the grave, took the keys and walked back out. That means that if we trust in him, we don't need to fear death. Death has come close to several of us in the last few weeks and months. You know, we are still grieving the loss of friends. But when people trust in Jesus, we know that he will open death and take them back out. That's what he promised, that we will experience a resurrection like his. We too will be alive forevermore and reign with him. 
No, the only way any of us can know that Jesus will open death and bring us out to glorious life is by turning to him and trusting in him now. He wants us to be able to face the uncertainty of our lives and the certainty of our death with confidence because he rules over all and owns the keys to death. So if you are here this morning with us and you have not trusted in Jesus, he has drawn near today to speak to you. I urge you to respond to him and we would love to help you to do so. So feel free to speak to myself or Sheldon or Sean after the service. On the basis of his resurrection and indestructible life, Jesus commissioned John to write to the churches so that they would know that the days until he returned would be full of trouble, but that he was in complete control and would overcome all their enemies, even death. His word can powerfully secure our heart because he reigns over death and everything else that happens. We've covered quite a bit of ground. So how can we sum all of this up? Here's my best effort. Jesus, the one who reigns over death, is in the midst of his churches and has given us his word to shepherd us in all our troubles. Jesus, the one who reigns over death, is in the midst of his churches and has given us his word to shepherd us in all of our troubles. Jesus is with us in everything we go through, no matter the nature of it. He overcame death and he rules over it. Grace Family Church, He is our glorious King and He is in our midst. He sees us as we are. He knows us through and through. And He speaks to shepherd, to comfort and correct us. My prayer is that by the power of His Spirit, God has given you a fresh vision of the risen Christ, who is is the exalted Son of Man. My prayer is that you have been drawn close to Him in worship and adoration, awed by His magnificence, comforted by his love and reassured by his victory and reign. In revealing himself to us again, may Jesus and the grace that is in him strengthen our hearts and steady our steps to walk faithfully before him as a local church, confident come what may in life or death. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.